Welcome to Tripping Over the Barrel, a series that highlights the unique personalities within the oil and gas industry and the stories they have to share with your hosts and lead storytellers, Tilo and Dr. Funkenstein. And we're off with Chuck Yates, the legend Chuck Yates. Man, I don't even know where to begin. Maybe your website, Chuck Yates Needs a Job, Not a Podcast, with you and every major celebrity under the sun. Maybe we talk about your time at Kane Anderson and funding the entire industry. I don't know. Maybe we talk about you being the the lead subject on uh, Bloomberg for predicting $1,800 gold. I don't even know. I just know that this is going to be a lot of fun. And uh, I'm super excited, Chuck, that you you came on. Well, guys, I appreciate you uh, having me on. I've, I've, I've learned a little bit now about podcasting because this is my second time to be a guest. The first time I just kind of laid there, but uh, this time I've, I've learned a little bit. And so Tim, what I've learned is you kind of got to ingratiate yourself with the host. So, uh, so here goes. Here we go. Here we go. I got a little bit of technology. All right. So are we good. On, so good. Are we so, on? Are we on good footing now, Jeremy? Are we? Friends? Thank you, Chuck. Thank you, man. That that's near and dear to my heart, man. Love it. Thank so, you. what you don't know is that Chuck and I made a small wager last night, and we have an over under on this podcast. And I'm he's trying to. I think he's trying to trying to win the bet a little bit early. <laughs> no, no, actually, uh, actually, I was trying to push it off. Because uh, you're the co-host, so you're going to be able to bait him into saying this. But well, uh, I am going to try purposely not to bait him, but let's see what happens. All right. All right. So we were just, so as the day progressed today when we we're recording, we we're recording on September 10th, I'm watching LinkedIn and I start to see new posts coming up on, you know, Chuck Yates needs a job, not a podcast. And we go to his website. And you know, it's just been evolving all day. The questions have continued to abound. All right, tell me about the picture with Charles Barkley. Okay, Jim Belushi. No, wait a minute. Now, who's that guy? So what's going on with this uh, Chuck Yates Needs a Job uh, website? All right. Well, we'll start at the beginning. So, you know, it was kind of late April. Get on a, a Zoom call kind of with the powers that be at Kane Anderson and, you know, get the whole speech about we need to go a different direction, you know, and all that. And so, anyway. It's not you, it's me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and so, uh, so you know, a few weeks later, I found myself in the Wall Street Journal. Chuck Yates leaves Kane Anderson, blah, blah, blah. So I was sitting there kind of thinking, uh, you know, what I wanted to do with my life and, and all this. And anyway, I've been friends with uh, David DeRode forever. And they've been trying to get me to come on Oilfield 360, you know, for a long time. And, uh, you know, the industry was in bad shape and all that. So I didn't really trust myself to go on to a podcast at that point, you know, given that I had a job and all that. Finding myself unemployed, boom, you know, sure, I'm in DeRode. And so what happened is I went on and on as a guest. And usually what they do is they set the, the timer at about an hour 15. You talk, you edit it down to 40, 45 minutes, and you're off to the races. Well, we wound up talking for two hours and 45 minutes. And, wow. well, and they called. This was so funny. They called the next day and they're like, hey, Chuck, 
we listened to that last night and all. And I said, well, how did it sound? And they said, wow, it was great. We laughed the whole time, but we think there's only about 15 usable minutes on this. (laughs) (laughs) Well, like, but what they did say is, well, we probably won't be able to run that with you as a guest, but why don't you come in and be a, a, a host of this and you can just talk about whatever you want. So I wasn't really sure they were serious. So I went out and created the website. I put the poster. I started announcing it on Twitter. I think I kind of backed them into the corner, you know, that they have to <laughs> let me do this. So we'll, we'll see. Seriously, man, who the fuck are you, man? I feel like maybe I've seen your face, although you just sort of look like a dude. So maybe I haven't. But all of a sudden, you just hit my radar. You hit everybody's radar. You know everyone. You know celebrities. Where are you from, man? Who are you? Interesting. So no, so I grew up in small town, Richmond, Texas, which Tim knows quite well. It's a suburb today, but way back in the day, it was actually a small town. Went to Rice University. Everybody in my family's always gone to Rice, and so so went to Rice. Spent a. a, a semester at the University of Texas Law School, where I figured out big, thick book, tiny print, no pictures is just really bad, you know, <laughs> sort of defaulted back into into Rice Business School because I didn't know what else to do, figured out finance and went, wow, okay, this is cool. I kind of think in numbers, so this is pretty neat. I wound up uh, trying to get a job on Wall Street in investment banking, and I had this unusual background kind of with the you know, the in and out of law school real quick and all and wound up and like one of the greatest things that ever happened to me, wound up getting a job with Stevens, the Little Rock, Arkansas Investment Bank. And uh, I was in the Houston office for six years and then the Dallas office for a year. So I always had the joke that uh, I wanted to do well, but not well enough to get promoted to Little Rock. (laughs) Just just kidding, Warren Stevens. But anyway, and then uh, wound up Joining uh, Kane Anderson shortly thereafter, and I guess it's kind of the the uh, the whole thing is uh, if you can't get another job and you just get stuck, maybe you're not very good at it. But I was good enough to stick around and ran the private equity oil and gas funds for you know call it almost twenty years. And not only did you run the the private oil and gas funds, you did so at a point where the oil and gas industry fundamentally changed. Shale became a factor. I mean, if you think back to 2002, 2003, even probably your very early days, oil and gas at that point seemed like a finite resource. We didn't know what was going to happen. And then all of a sudden, boom, shale and fracking. So that probably took you to a completely different place. What was that like seeing the massive explosion of the shale revolution and then trying to pick the right companies to fund? Well, you know, what was interesting about it is you had that evolution going on And if you think about it, when oil was in decline, you basically made your money kind of playing the cycles and you made your money on the buy. You know, if you could get out there, find an asset, be able to, you know, find the old person that decides to sell at the last minute, be able to get a negotiated deal out of a larger company and that that's really how you made your money. And then as we transitioned over into to shale, it became a lot more about science, you know, figuring out the technology, figuring out how the technology and what's the proper analogy and how does this look and that. And so it was just it was fascinating because, you know, when I first got into the business, I showed up at the uh, Petroleum Club in Midland 
And I was having, and you guys have been there, right? Where you sit around at the table with all the old guys. And I was, mm-hmm. I don't know, 25 years old. And the old guy looks at me and says, why in the hell would you want to get in a business <laughs> where all that matters is what the Saudis feel like when they wake up in the morning? You know, <laughs> at least for a while, we had a run where it didn't matter what the Saudis think, but I think they're back king again. So, you know, oops. <laughs> Now, Jeremy, that is a good fake Texas accent, unlike yours. Well, he's got a built-in advantage, Tim. He probably isn't from New Hampshire. I don't even know if he's ever been there. What's that? Is that north of the Mason-Dixon line? It is. Slightly. The, the, uh, I have actually been to, uh, to New Hampshire. Uh, when you go fundraising, you wind up going to every state capital uh, ah. of every state. So I have been to, uh, to New Hampshire. What's the capital? Not going to get it. <laughs> it's, it's called Concord. Most people see it. They're like Concord. I'm like, no, Concord. Like we fucking won. Uh, so <laughs> the war of Northern aggression. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm glad the North won. I seriously am. Yeah. Things have worked out well, I suppose. Yeah. So when you, when you started, I mean, with Kane Anderson and, and before that, the talk at the time was peak oil. When is, production going to peak. Everyone was trying to predict peak oil. And of course, now we've shifted to peak demand as opposed to peak oil. That's because of the, the frack boom. So is, is that the fundamental shift or, I mean, that you saw in the industry? Well, you know, it was, it was interesting because one of the things I always hated is when a management team would walk into our office and go, okay, this time it's different. And it's never different, you know, and it's it's pretty simple and it's pretty simple across all commodities. And I hate to sound like I'm on Sesame Street, but let's do a little sing song. Nothing cures high oil prices like high oil prices. Nothing cures low oil prices like low oil prices. I mean, and it really is as simple as that. You can kind of take shale out of the equation because at the end of the day, if you have $130 oil, I mean, we as Americans, we as Texans, we as entrepreneurs, we're going to go figure out how to get more of it. And we just did that really, really well. And conversely, when oil hits 35, guess what? We're going to use a lot more of it, but we're sure as heck not going to drill for it. So, you know, it really is that simple. I mean, I've, you know, I talked to my mom about oil and gas and, you know, God bless her. She raised four boys and how she remained this naive to this day is unbelievable. But it, you know, everyone has the perception that you go drill a well and all of a sudden one day it stops producing oil. It just becomes uneconomic. It doesn't stop producing oil, right? I mean, it just it and so I think I think that's kind of the misconception that that folks have out there because you know, all the oil we shut in over the last, call it three or four months, dealing with lower prices, if oil were back at 125, we'd turn that all back on and we'd be drilling, drilling more stuff. So, yeah, I mean, Chuck, it's funny. I've been talking to your mom too. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, um, so one of the things we always talk about on this show, Chuck, is is funny things or embarrassing things that happen in presentations, demonstration meetings. You've certainly been in tons and tons of those. You've probably stubbed your own toe. You've probably seen some other people do embarrassing stuff. Anything stand out top of mind for a meeting where you're like, I can't believe that just happened or, or it's just one of those moments where you've told other people about it. 
You know, other than like a podcast host intimating that he's been intimate with your mother. I mean, yeah. are you saying outside of that maybe? Um, <laughs> no. Okay. So there are enough embarrassing Chuck Yates stories and they all come out. So let's not waste time on, uh, on that. But I do have a really funny story and I'll change the names to protect the innocent. Um, we sure. had a portfolio company and let's just call it Company X. This was back in 08, 09, when oil prices were plunging. And this company was basically running an auction to get rid of their Permian Basin assets, right? Mm. And those pretty small assets. So bid date pops up, company X bids 35 million. And then (laughs) the company takes about two weeks. They call us back and say, okay, we'll take 35 million. Well, in that time, oil had fallen 15%. 15%. So we're like, hey, we can't do 35. You know, that was, you know, price deck from before. And they go, okay, well, what can you do? So we crunched numbers, came back and we said, okay, uh, 24. And again, they took two weeks. They call us back. They say, okay, we'll take 24. Well, it's like oil had fallen 20% this time. And we were sitting there going, well, we can't do that. And all. But in the course of that going back and forth, we'd actually developed a pretty good relationship with the company. So we said, look, let's do this. Let's just negotiate the PSA in good faith and let's have it so literally it can be signed. We will give you a number and then you guys say yes or no. If you say yes, we'll sign the PSA We'll hedge it and then it's great. There's no reason we won't close at that point because we'll be hedged in and everything will be fine. Company goes great. So we spend a week, we do that and it comes down to the bid day. So this is, you know, Tuesday at noon, let's say, and we're on the phone with the company and the company's two principals are sitting there fighting like they always did. Great guys. They've known each other since third grade, but you know, one of them would always call and say, I'm quitting the company. And we're like, what, what? Oh, don't worry. He's been saying that since third grade, you know, one of these things. <laughs> so they're arguing and the land guy is going, it's 18 million. We got to get this asset. They're good assets, 18 million. And the CEO, who's the crusty old operations engineer, conservative guy's like, no, it's 16. We can't pay a dollar over 16. So they're arguing and they're like, Kane, you're going to have to make the decision and uh, the CEO goes, hold on just a second. And he's, he's gone for two minutes. He comes back in and he says, it's $16 million. And the land guy hits the roof. I've had enough of this. You've been this way since blah, 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 blah. Screw you, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to quit, blah, blah. And uh, the CEO goes, now, hold on just a second. That was the leasing office of our building. The company that is selling this division just terminated their lease and they ask us if we want the office space. We're, <laughs> we're paying $16 million. <laughs> You don't need to have a heart attack today, land guy. It's okay. Yeah, it's exactly. Okay. Yeah, so we, we got it for $16 million. It wound up being a really good deal. We sold the whole thing for $150 million, uh, you know, three or four years ago, we wound up putting more money in it to uh, to actually drill and all. But it was it was one of the funniest things because literally the land off or the lease office had called and said, "Y'all want this space?" They just terminated. <laughs> <laughs> so, Chuck, one thing that I'm curious about, in fact, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on was that podcast I witnessed with you. Yeah, a video with you and and Dave Lenorman, who's you know a really impressive guy. I've always liked that company. 
uh, in OKC. And you guys are going back and forth on things are changing, right? We're now going to become plumbers for the industry. We're not just going to send guys on a, a triangle or a circular route to see a well. We're going to be more strategic. We're going to leverage data and send these guys out where they need to go, just like a plumber would on a day-to-day basis. And it turns out you're actually moving a little bit more toward potentially investing in energy tech. Can you tell us a little bit about that transition or at least the early stages of it and why that's the direction you're going in? Yeah, that's pretty interesting. So when I got uh, let go by Kane and the announcement happened, I don't know what the subgenre was, but let's just say it was energy. But for about two weeks, I was the most searched person on LinkedIn in energy or something. And uh, I got every single message you could possibly get. You know, I had a, a, a commodity trader female that looked like maybe she tanned a whole lot, who you know, was wondering if I wanted to come to Los Angeles. I got, you know, do you need a new car? I got real estate agents. I had it all. But it was interesting that the Cottonwood Venture guys sent me a message and said, hey, can we get together and compare notes? And it was really interesting in that I didn't know who these guys were. And I should have. They'd worked places that I obviously had done a lot of work uh, with and all. So we got together and we chatted all night kind of about energy technology, what they were seeing in the industry. And what was really interesting is the next day I sent them a copy of a pitch book I had written 22 years ago at Stevens. And they literally could have lifted pages out of that pitch book to use in their pitch book today. And, uh, so anyway, uh, so kind of from that, we spent a lot of time together with uh, with those guys. I think a week later, we went to eat dinner. And the most frustrating thing you have when you're fundraising for a private equity fund firm is no investor will ever tell you no, right? Mm-hmm. They always want the optionality of the last second Absolutely. to say, sure, we're in, you know, it's great. And so you'll have 12 meetings with people and they'll say no. And then you're like, did you know that after meeting one or two? And I say this with love to all of my former LPs who are listening to this, but it's, you know, the, the greatest answer is a quick yes. The second best answer is a quick no. So we were sitting right. at din- we were sitting at dinner that night and I'm talking to the Cottonwood guys. I go, how are you doing fundraising wise? Who are you talking to? They go, oh, we're talking to this person. I texted them. Uh, no, they're not going to invest. <laughs> they're like, what? <laughs> what? What are you saying? And uh, and uh, anyway, I was like, well, I know them. They say they're not going to invest. And, you know, they, the guys were like, man, this is great. You know, who else? And they kept. So anyway, I was I was getting them a few quick no's. And they uh, they started going down the path of you really need to join the advisory board. And I said, look, guys, I don't want a job. Not that the advisory board pays anything, but I don't want a job. I don't want to do anything, but I'm happy to help you all out. I like you guys. I like what you're doing. I used to do it back at Stevens. You know, this is going to be fun. So I'm happy to help you out. They're like, no, come on, join the advisory board. And I go, guys, I, sp- I misspelled masturbate yesterday on Twitter. <laughs> I, well, I, I, I spelt it ER and somebody came on and said, Chuck, it's you are. And I'm like, not the way I do it, buddy. Come on. <laughs> but so anyway, I joined the, joined the advisory board. And the, and, the, and the whole reason I like that space and what I'm so interested about 
And I'm totally going to say this time it's different, even though I just told you that I, I hated when the management team said that, is we've made the transition. We are no longer in the age of the driller. I mean, we were for the last, what, 12 years supplying the marginal barrel of oil to the world by drilling U.S. shale. And, you know, the world took, what, 15 million barrels offline between OPEC, the U.S., and all that. So the first 15 million barrels of demand we have, we can just turn on a spigot, right, and and turn that stuff back back on. And so we don't need to drill another well. So all we're going to do is produce out. And if you think about it, you know, producing out, that is a low margin business, right? Because when you bring this well on at a thousand barrels a day, okay, that's high margin. You may not make a good return because you spent 15 million drilling the well, but at least revenue minus expenses is pretty high. Three years into the shale revolution, revenues minus expenses pretty tight. And we all know what happens in a low margin business. They teach you that first day of uh, business school. It's like, boom, you got to automate. You got to use technology. You got to get rid of people. And I hate to say that because I don't, you know, I don't like getting rid of people. So I think we're going to have just this massive amount of automation go. And, you know, if you look back at oil and gas technology and software and automation, we're this business that historically, and the reason we've been so poorly managed as a business is because it's a lottery ticket business, right? Yes. Price of oil goes up, great, we're rich. We hit a big, uh, we hit a big well, we're rich. The only reason you spend money historically is to buy more lottery tickets. So we would spend money on technology as an industry, like in the late '90s, 3D seismic. You image those bright spots boom, you can buy more lottery tickets. So we spent a lot on that age of the driller, drill a three-mile lateral, 98 stages on the frack, boom. I mean, those are more lottery tickets, so you do it. Automate your back office, no way. You know, you keep that on a ledger. And so at least, and I I totally stole this from Tommy Noose at Oasis, so I've got to give him credit for this. But if you think about the tools that the production engineer has at his or her disposal to be able to generate profits for the company because that's all we're going to do is produce and production engineer is going to be the big dog. Think about it. I mean, the pumper drives by, he sticks a broom handle into a tank, right? (laughs) He calls the field off. He's like, hey, Becky Sue, it's two feet, seven inches. She does the calculations and goes, okay, that's 16 barrels of oil yesterday, then they fax the results into the home office. I mean, that's just not going to work going forward. We're going to have to automate that. There's going to have to be, we're going to have to start using artificial intelligence. I mean, if you're talking about the engineer sitting in the home office going, should I turn the speed up on uh, on the pump? Should I slow it down? They got to send the pumper out to do it. So, so I think that's going to be really, really big. And then why this time is different is when you're in a low margin business, the back office just has to get automated. You know, you're going to have to have better software systems. You're going to have to stop typing things into Excel and, and all that. So way more than you wanted to hear about all that. But that's what I'm seeing out there. So I really do think this time is different. And if it's not different enough, 
just realize what we're doing. We're letting go of a lot of people these days, and it's all the older people that don't like technology anyway, and a bunch of kids are sitting around, and they all want their apps so they can do all this on their uh, iPhone. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so good. It's an interesting problem, and you're you're echoing a lot of my thoughts. And, of course, I, I want to say that Jeremy and I are both secretly smiling at this because you're you're bouncing off of kind of what we do for – we're paid for for a living is – exactly taking people down to that trend. But if you look back at what the eighties and nineties, it was spending your dollars better in exploration. So that's where the technology real development was being pointed was in the exploration and reservoir modeling in the early two thousands and mid two thousands, it was drilling and completions and really driving the technology towards that. And I think you're right. I echo that is that it's now we need to get get better at the extraction and getting this, you know, through the system at low cost because it is a commodity. I mean, your natural gas cubic foot is the same as someone else's natural gas cubic foot. You just got to be able to do it better than they can. And cheaper. And you know why else it'll get done? And man, this is going to get me flamed. Uh, so I'm sitting here when this plays, I'll be watching my phone for text. But another reason this time is different is, you know, when you're in this low margin business, yes, we as an industry have never managed ourselves very well. But I'll tell you the one thing we know how to do is if you're a CEO, you know how to keep your job, right? And they're not going to have a choice, right? So this just has to happen if we're going to continue to have, I saw this metric the other day on Twitter, you know, CEOs per barrel of production in the United States, that it's a really high number and all, but it'll stay that high because CEOs are really good at keeping their job. And this is their one tool to do it. Because if you don't do it, somebody else is and you're going to be out of business. Yeah, it's like the head coach that doesn't make the playoffs. You got to fire the OC. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, Chuck, this is this is good stuff. And I think to, to kind of expand on the point that you made, first of all, I love the the broomstick. I would, I would usually say like... A, you know, like a yardstick, but same idea, right? right? Well, it's to right here. So that means we have this much oil. It's like, I feel like there's a, a better way, but an exact conversation that I had, you know, I'm a software sales guy and, and spoke to a company that's done fairly well historically, but they just had to let go of 40% of their staff. So they're sitting around thinking, what are our priorities for next year? We're not going to drill. We have 60% of the people that we had last year what are we supposed to do? The number one thing that comes up is, well, we have existing production. We have to optimize that production. What does that mean? Routing by exception, right? Improving your control center out in the field and then moving toward things like cloud technology so you don't have to retain. And again, I, I don't want to advocate for getting rid of people. It's already happening. Right. So you have less people in the back office to be able to do database administrative work on your old Excel spreadsheet caliber software system. And now it's like, you know, there's things like Amazon Web Services. There's, you, everybody has SCADA and automation. You need to feed that data in and start becoming a little more strategic with how you do these things. And I'm sure it's painful. Growth is, is always painful for these companies. But I will say, everyone says to me, man, you're, you know, everyone, I guess I should say from New England, super liberal and not in this world says, you're in a, you're in a dying industry. And I say, that may be true. I've never personally been busier in energy tech because when oil was 110 bucks a barrel, people are too busy. They don't need to buy tech. They need to drill more wells. And then when it would get too low, then we can't do anything. Our hands are completely tied. 
we're really in that sweet spot now for energy tech. And I'm curious to see and, and what you think, besides just the typical production optimization stuff, routing by exception, any other areas that you're bullish on in the energy tech world? You know, it's uh, it's really interesting to kind of echo this, and you can take this back to the Northeast when you when you talk to those folks. I mean, what is oil? It's one third of all energy consumption in the world. I mean, it is transportation, right? 90, 95% of all transportation is fueled by oil and the like. And what's really interesting about that is, is, you know, you go through the electric car stuff, right? And you sit there and you go, okay, how many internal combustion engines are there in the United States? There are 300 million of them, right? And you sit there and you go, how many of those are going to be on the road and call it 10 to 15 years? Probably all 300 million of them, right? We built, really, we built yeah. really good cars. I mean, when's the last time you went into the dealership and said, man, that internal combustion engine just not working. I need a new one. You know, it just doesn't happen. Well, when uh, you get tired of your car, you just sell it to the dealership and they give it to someone else. No, that's... that's that car's going to stay around. That That's exactly right. And if you if you think about it too, it's we sell, call it, you know, seven, eight million cars a year in the United States. And so even if Tesla, and, and this is interesting, six million of them are actually $40,000 or less. So... You know, if we're going to, I don't know if you guys bought a Tesla, but they're pretty expensive. <laughs> and so let's, let's assume his Model 3 works and he captures half of the market share and all this. That's still, you know, 10 years from now, he'll have, call it 35 million of them on the road and there will be 335 million internal combustion engines. It's funny, I was giving a speech over the last couple of years where I get up there and I start off with, let's read some headlines from the New York Times and, you know, the headlines are electric cars take over, electric cars, the wave of the future, all that. And then I run through all these stats about, you know, how many internal combustion engines we have. I go through the whole thing of the 17-year-old kid in the deep remote part of China whose dad has the only car in the village and he gets to take out the head cheerleader. Tell me that guy's not going to do everything for the rest of his life to have a car, you know. Right. And I, I go through all this and... uh and then you can take it to uh, you can take it to air travel. I mean, uh, Airbus and Boeing—they don't even have patents on an electric plane. So not mm -hmm. even like a prototype being built, but not even a patent. And so you go through all that. And or ships. I was thinking about those big ships. How they they can't move electric? Exactly. And so to so what we have seen over the last ten years is a lot of value destruction in the oil business. But we haven't seen a business that's suddenly small or going away or anything like that. So I'd always give that speech and then I'd walk away from the podium. But then I'd come back and I'd say, oh, by the way, those headlines, 1917, 1918 and 1919. This isn't anything new, guys. I mean, right. and, yeah. uh, and all that. So, you know, I've, I've been working on a speech. I haven't given it yet, but it's really interesting if you look at the oil and gas business, the oil business in America, and you look at kind of dollar per acre and just what we were talking about in terms of value destruction and the like, and you compared that to the tech bubble of the late 90s, early 2000s, and you compared it to kind of like dollars per eyeball viewing websites and, and all that, you had a, just a massive amount of value destruction on the NASDAQ, a lot of venture capital 
dollars were lost and, and, and all of that. But what was really interesting, if you just look at operating statistics like number of web pages, dollars of commerce over the web, number of people using the internet and all that, it was up and to the right kind of the whole time. So I think, I think that's how you have to bifurcate the energy business, the oil business is, yeah, okay, we had value destruction and the like, but the flip side is we're going to be using oil for a long, long time. And so way more than you wanted to hear, but the energy technology stuff that's going to work is stuff that one adjusts, allows those companies to adjust to being in a low margin business. But two, the other things that are going to, that are going to work are going to recognize that that oil value chain, literally the pipelines we have, the boats that send stuff around the refineries and all that whole infrastructure is paid for. So the technology that's going to work is going to be incremental to that. It's going to, as opposed to, you know, if we were starting from scratch today, what would we do? We'd probably use hydrogen, right? We'd, you know, we'd build a hydrogen system to power our economy, but we've got this oil system that's already paid for, already in place. And so I think one of the key things you look at when you're making an investment is, you know, the marginal cost if you can deal with an already paid for infrastructure, those are probably technologies that win and get used because it's going to make the business better. If you, if you hear the revolutionaries, if you hear the people standing on the mountain preaching, we're going to fundamentally change this whole world. Those guys always get slaughtered in the history of the world, but particularly in the <laughs> energy business. Or just yeah, in but the history this, of tech too, I think. Yeah, but this time will be different. Yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> so I wanted to uh, reverse back. While I've been sitting here, your your pictures on your uh, Chuck Yates needs a job <laughs> page are, are flying by, and there's one that looks like you're laying on a bed getting a tattoo of some sort. What the heck's going on there? Tell that story. Okay, so for almost 15 years now, I've been on the board of an entity called YDC, the Youth Development Center. It runs an after-school literacy program for Houston's Fifth Ward. And if you know Houston, that's kind of our roughest and tumblest neighborhood. And anyway, it was one of those charities that used to uh, keep the receipts in a shoebox. I'd get a phone call on Thursday. Hey, we're not going to make payroll tomorrow. It was, it was definitely one of those. And so we clearly needed an event to be able to raise some money. So God bless him. I took Mike Lynn out to see YDC and love Mike, but he was shooting his mouth off, right? He was sitting there going, <laughs> we need a big event. We need to put on our tuxedos, smoke cigars, raise some money for these kids. So I know Mike is kind of prone to maybe a cocktail on a Saturday night as we all are. So it's, <laughs> Maybe a wager or two. Exactly. So it's Saturday night. It's 1030. I send Mike a text. Thanks so much for coming out to uh, YDC. I had this great idea for a fundraiser. Why don't we do an old school roast? Because I used to, I grew up, I have my dirty sense of humor because I used to sit in my grandmother's lap and we'd watch Benny Hill and we'd watch those old mm. Dean Martin style roast. And uh, so anyway, I just developed the dirty sense of humor. I knew if I ever threw a charity event, it was going to be a roast. So I say, hey, Mike, will you be roasted? And Mike, to his credit, emailed back, yeah, I'll do it. And there were like typos. So I knew I caught him with two or three cocktails in him. <laughs> and uh, 
I screenshot that and I sent it to 500 people in the industry. Mike's agreed to be roasted. I get a call the next morning. What in the heck? Everybody's <laughs> texting me. But to his credit, Mike went through with it. So we've done this roast. Uh, we've done 13 of these. And uh, our running joke, and we've done, so we did uh, Mike Lynn. We did Will Van Lowe. We did Ken Hirsch, Lisa Stewart, Ted Collins, Alan Smith, Marshall Atkins, Billy Quinn, Zach Lee was last year. He was the last one we did. And I know I'm for, did I say Lisa Stewart? I know I'm forgetting one or two men of the hour and I really apologize for doing that. But the year, the the running joke used to always be is, you know, when's the last roast? And I said, well, we've always got one more because we can always roast me. Well, what happened two years (laughs) ago was we were raising money to build a building. And so this was the year I had to call everybody and say, don't buy a 10 grand table. You buy a 25 grand table. It's a one year ask, I promise. And so I started doing that. And early on, somebody was like, yeah, I'll do it, but you got to be the man of the hour. So I was like, okay, fine. I'll be the the man of the hour. And uh, so the first two years we did this roast at River Oaks Country Club, we outgrew that. We moved it over to the House of Blues and we did it there for... Uh, eight years. And the last three years, we've done it at the Revention Center. We uh, we just got to the point, my roast, I think we had a thousand people at wow. this thing. And uh, so what was so funny about it was uh, Jewel, who's the singer, you know, who will save your soul. She's a, she's a really good, <laughs> she's a really good friend of mine. So she flew in and was one of my roasters and I mean, it was just hysterical. She closed her set by singing, instead of Foolish Games, which is one of her songs, she sang Foolish Chuck. And she had lyrics in there like, I see you outside my window touching yourself. I mean, it's just, (laughs) it was totally making me out to be a stalker, which I guess kind of I am, but you know. Um, And so anyway, she was hysterical. If you're going to stalk, that's a good option. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, I'm like, if you're going to have a stalker, don't you want a harmless one, you know? And, uh, but, uh, so anyway, uh, she came in, I, uh, I filmed a video with Lee majors and, uh, Lee's, Lee's a good friend. And, and what was so great about his video is it's him on the phone and he's sitting there talking. Can you believe he's throwing a roast for himself? Who does he think he is? Me? <laughs> <laughs> and it finally pops up to uh, to me and I'm like, I'm sitting right here, Lee. I can I can hear you. And uh, I go, I've had it, Lee. I'm going to go call Eric Estrada. And Lee goes, don't bother. That's who I was talking to. So, uh, <laughs> so, so we have that. My best friend Fish was a, a roaster. Carl Brunsicki who uh, runs Haymaker, the minerals company, and one of my dearest friends. Carl, actually, we, we normally hire a comedy writer to help us write this. Carl actually wrote his own script. He handed it to the comedy writer, and the comedy writer handed it right back and said, dude, I wouldn't change a word. And Carl was so funny because uh, me, Carl, and Jewel had had dinner um, in the past. So they kind of knew each other and, and all this. And I think his, uh, best line was like we said in the nineties, enough about jewel. And, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but literally the goat, I mean, the, the, maybe the greatest roaster 
in all of history that night was my priest. And I mean, he got up there in full collar. And uh, what was funny is he sat down with the comedy writer and he said, here are 13 words I cannot say. But other than that, I can say it. Because I told the bishop I'd only say words that were in the Bible. And let's just put it this way. A little bit of Leviticus goes a long way at a roast. (laughs) So so his opening joke, he gets up there and, and he goes, I told the bishop that I was coming tonight to preach the word, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I very quickly figured out that that message would fall on deaf ears tonight. So I sent him my resignation so I could get in on this shit. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, what was so funny is uh, people thought I hired an actor to play my priest. I'm like, no, that, that is my priest. That's my spiritual advisor, you know, getting me, you know, getting me through all the turmoil in my life. Well, what was, uh, so the next day somebody texted him and said, I didn't believe you were a priest. So I looked you up and I just want you to know my priest doesn't talk like that in church. Patrick (laughs) texted back, Hey, we weren't in church. So, but I can live too, but let's get to the tattoo. I'm sorry. A bit long winded, but so my closing, my closing roast was, uh, I sang my way by Frank Sinatra and roasted people, uh, kind of in between. And all, and and then what we had to do, or the thing about the roast is, one person pays for a table, right? So you get a rich guy that pays for the table. He invites nine other rich people, right? And the other nine people haven't cut a check that night, so we're always trying to think, okay, how do we get money out of the other nine people? Well, we came up with the idea of I would get a tattoo on stage. And, uh, this, this may sound really simple, but I swear me and the roast committee killed 10 million brain cells trying to think of it. Cause at one point we were going to auction off logos, you know, and maybe NCAP will bid against quantum and NGP, but then you're like going, well, if quantum wins the bid, NGP's not going to put in their money. So we had to figure out a way to like get all those nine people at each table that didn't cut a check. So what we did is Carl Brunsicki got up there and he said, all right, people, Chuck Yates gets a tattoo tonight. No questions asked. He's getting a tattoo and he has no tattoos on his body. He's getting one tonight. That's number one. Here's how it goes down. We, the audience are going to choose and we're going to choose a tattoo that the only way Chuck can get out of that tattoo is if he bids 2X what we as the audience bid, right? Oh, boy. So so anyway, they put up three options, and one was like a drilling rig, so that was kind of stupid. The next one was kind of this pink unicorn-looking thing that was pretty bad-looking, and so the audience kind of cheered for that. The last one literally looked as if I had a whale tail, like I was wearing a bikini, and it was going to come up above my <laughs> jeans so that everybody could see it. And the audience went nuts. So it was the whale tail. And uh, so anyway, Carl, you know, the, the audience and Carl said, write down the amount of money that you're willing to give. It goes to YDC and let's make it so big that Chuck has no recourse, but just to say, uh-uh, I can't match that. I got to get the whale tail. Right. So, so let me tell it, it's, it, I'm going to circle back. So this is really interesting. In the Fifth Ward, a charity had actually 
defrauded people of some money. This was not YDC. It was a different one. And the way the state of Texas deals with that is they actually take the money from the charity and instead of giving it back to donors, they give it to the organization that is most doing what that charity was doing. So they basically said the donors gave money to help literacy in the fifth ward. Uh, you know, let's give it to somebody else doing it. So we got this notice and there was a judge in Austin that was going to do this trial and little old YDC with a pro bono lawyer and the executive director and the chairman of the board is going into this hearing. And I forget who it is. It's like the YMCA and the Boys and Girls Club. And they've got Fulbright and Jaworski and, you know, pick another Vincent Elkins. And they go through their cases and they have like 45 page PowerPoints and all this stuff. And YDC gets up there and our pro bono lawyer asks the chairman of the board all the questions that he was supposed to ask the executive director and then ask the executive director all the questions he was supposed to ask the, the chairman of the board. Anyway, it was just kind of this mess. But the judge, the judge actually said, OK, stop, I've heard enough. And he pulls the chairman of the board of uh, trustees of YDC aside and Jennifer Hance, and it was just great. He said, hey, Jennifer, y'all are the ones doing and y'all need this money. If you can raise, if you raised, uh, it's half a million dollars, could you match that? Because if you can match that, I'll give you the half a million dollars. And Jennifer and I've always plotted about YDC stuff, and we've always told each other, the answer is yes. You just always say yes. It doesn't matter. We'll figure out later. So Jennifer tells the judge, oh, yeah, we can totally do that. And, and, uh, Anyway, he said, okay. tattoo, put them over the top. Exactly. That's exactly where I'm going That's with cool. this. And That's so, cool. so basically the, the, what the judge said was, what do you normally raise at the roast? And it's usually about $800,000, $850,000. Well, we had raised basically double that on table sales, but the judge got such a kick out of the tattoo that he said, if the tattoo raised half a million dollars, he'd give us the half a million dollars. So, I have a million dollar tattoo on my ass. And that's, that's that picture. And that's and that's a whale tail. So you got like a little thong sticking up above your shorts when you were walking around? Fuck no, man. I paid the 2X <laughs> and got a heart with my uh, kids' initials instead. <laughs> there will be no whale tail. I do not have a second <laughs> wife yet. Oh, <laughs> so. Yet, ladies, yet. So, Chuck, man, I, I just want to say this was fun. I, I really, you know, I didn't know you before we got into this, but I've thoroughly enjoyed our interaction. I love the way that you interact with the people on Energy FinTwit. We didn't even get into that. Uh, but I'm excited to see what you do in the energy tech world, man. You've got a, a great outlook. You're a good ambassador for this industry. And I just personally wanted to thank you for coming on today. Man, I appreciate you guys. uh having me on nobody loves to hear themselves speak more than me so this was fun for me eh. well that you started your own podcast so that's if you really want to hear yourself talk you'll have hours and hours and hours well we have well, yeah i want to get a shot at this uh your your recording studio in uh, richmond because you know we're, we're almost neighbors so yep. we need to get together here in town it's it's really cool a guy named chase owns it it's right down the street from me so yeah anytime you needed to record something it's really cool and uh yeah, the, the approach I'm taking to the podcast is I think 90% of podcasts don't make it past episode 10. And so 
I figure if I make it past episode one, you know, I'm kind of one step of the way there. We 10 percenters, Tim. Yeah, we we're, did it. we're in the top 10. Congratulations, <laughs> boys. So for everybody listening, it's Chuck Yates, needsajob.com. I think he's nimble fatty on Twitter or something like that. Either way, you'll see him around. Chuck, thank you so much, man. Absolutely. And please don't tell my mom my Twitter handle. (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) Grandma. Mom. Bye.